Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, antitrust lawyers John Jacobs and Kevin Schock join host Marcus Funk to discuss the fundamental legal principles applicable to no-poach and wage-fixing agreements. They also explore current government enforcement priorities related to these types of agreements and evaluate examples of recent enforcement activity in the no-poach and wage-fixing space. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Well, we're really lucky to be joined by two antitrust gurus uh, from our own law firm today. So John and Kevin, great to have you guys with us. And as we said at the outset, our focus today is to discuss no poach agreements, which is one of those topics that I think a lot of us have sort of a, a vague understanding of, but probably don't know a whole lot about. And so that's where you come in. So uh, maybe we can kick things off, Kevin, with you. And can you kind of tell us a little bit about what no poach agreements are, how they're used? Give us sort of the, the one-on-one on uh, no poach agreements. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. I think sort of stepping back, it makes sense to first understand a little bit about just the foundation of antitrust law. I won't bore you or the listeners with too much of it, but I'll give you just sort of a you know, high level overview of, of what the antitrust law at play is here, because I think that'll inform and, and make our discussion a little bit easier to follow. So uh, in the United States, there's a foundational antitrust law called the Sherman Act. It's passed in 1890. And effectively, the goal of the Sherman Act is to preserve free and unfettered competition as the effectively principal rule of trade. And when we talk about the Sherman Act, we we often think of it in sort of two parts. The first part sort of outlaws unreasonable contracts, combinations, or conspiracies that restrain trade. And section two sort of deals more with monopolization or attempts to, to monopolize. And so while section two is important, we deal with that a lot in the antitrust world, most of what we're going to talk about today sort of falls under that section one part. And Really, since the Sherman Act's introduction, a robust common law has developed around Section 1, which makes clear that agreements that unreasonably restrain trade are illegal, and they can be illegal in sort of one of two ways. They can be per se illegal, and those are agreements or arrangements that doesn't really matter what their impact or effect is. The fact that they exist is enough for them to be illegal. And then there are those agreements that we have to sort of look beyond sort of the the mere fact of the agreement and decide whether that agreement is more anti-competitive or, or I guess, harms competition, or it, it's more sort of pro-competitive. And we sort of look at those agreements under what's known as the, the rule of reason. And so we can sort of look at that different structure when we're looking at both no poach agreements and wage fixing agreements. So I, I guess to answer your question, what's a, what's a wage fixing uh, arrangement or a, an agreement? Well, that's an agreement between two competitors to pay wages, either high wages or low wages, but it effectively reduces the competition in the labor market to pay wages to employees. And that's considered to be a per se violation of that section one of the Sherman Act. 
And then no poach uh, agreements also sort of fall under Section 1 of the Sherman Act because really what they are are agreements between competitors to not hire one another's laborers. You know, and there are certain nuances to this which we'll, we'll ultimately dig into. But at a high level, that's what those agreements are. Uh, wage fixing agreements, fixing the wages for, for employees, no poach arrangements, allocating who's going to be able to recruit, hire, and retain the market for employees. And in terms of determining whether something is a per se violation or a rule of reason violation, is that something that is drawn from the common law at this point? Right. Yeah, it's not necessarily statutory. It's uh, drawn from the common law. And as I sort of indicated before, there are sort of arrangements that are considered per se violations. Again, doesn't matter if the impact is, is ultimately positive. The mere fact of the agreement is illegal because we think those types of agreements over the long run, ultimately harm competition. And that's what the antitrust laws are trying to protect. It's robust competition in the marketplace. Whereas there are some agreements where when you look at them, you're going to analyze the pro-competitive effects of those agreements versus the anti-competitive burdens or the the harm to competition. And if the pro-competitive aspects outweigh the anti-competitive harms, ultimately the law might allow for those agreements that restrain trade to survive. And I'm guessing, and we'll obviously talk about this a little later, and I know John is going to cover this as well, is the the difference between the current enforcement environment, the future enforcement environment, and I'm guessing when it comes to determining whether something violates the rule of reason, there's probably a fair amount of subjectivity involved. But Kevin, I mean, is, have you sort of just on that topic, is there does it really swing quite widely in terms of whether something is viewed to violate the rule of reason or not? Is that really more of a, a function or artifact of the particular administration uh, within the SEC or the DOJ rather? No, I, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think in this context, you know, and let's focus on no poach and, and sort of wage fixing and an and agreement where, you know, competitors decide, and we'll talk about examples of this later, but they, they get together and they decide, hey, we're going to pay our employees this much money. Let's set aside sort of federal minimum wage, you know, but we're going to pay our employees this much money. That what we would say is going to be a naked wage fixing claim. Similarly, an agreement between competitors where they say, hey, we're not going to reach out or, or solicit or recruit one another's employees. In fact, we're not going to hire your employees for us. That's going to sort of be a naked no poach agreement. Those are always going to be per se violations. And the DOJ has been really clear about that. Where things get a little bit more complicated, you know, particularly in the no poach space, are not these sort of naked no poach arrangements, you know, these basic agreements not to do anything, but where those no poach arrangements are adjacent to you know, sort of a legitimate ancillary business restriction. So let, let's imagine that two businesses enter into a joint venture to develop some sort of technology. And there's going to be a lot of investment sort of on both sides. Teams are going to be working close together. And there might be some worry amongst those joint venturers that there's going to you know, be poaching of, of one another's employees that are going to harm one another outside the context of that joint venture relationship. So those companies might enter into an arrangement 
that defines under the, the circumstances in which there can be recruitment or, you know, quote unquote, poaching of one another's employees. And in that circumstance where we have some other context that we're looking at, it's no longer a naked no poach arrangement. And then we're going to have to really dig into the facts and we're going to have to determine whether that arrangement between those companies is more pro-competitive than it is anti-competitive. So th- thanks for kind of giving us a little bit of that background. And in terms of just sort of distinguishing wage fixing from la- fra- agreements, from no poach agreements, c- could you kind of give us a hypothetical where you have, let's say, an employee of a company uh, and, and give us an example of where you know the company's management might be engaging in a wage fixing agreement and then how that hypo would be basically modified to to show us what a no poaching agreement looks like well so uh, i think wage fixing and, and no poaching are, are separate potential claims but they they could also occur in, in the same context and you know I, I think a hypothetical you know based on real life for no poaching let's say the the industry is technology and there's a a real need for for programmers but there's a a worry in the industry that there's a, a shortage of programmers and they're going to be be able to really demand a, a high salary in order to get there, to, in order to come in, into the door. And and companies might worry about that. They might worry that, you know, having to pay a high salary to these programmers is going to eat into their margin. So they might call up, you know, one of their competitors and say, hey, I know we're both working on this new technology that requires these competitors. Let's just, you know, protect our margins. Let's make sure that we're all able to you know, compete, you know, for, for this talent. Let's agree to not pay them more than $100,000. That would be an example of wage fixing because you know, two company or you know two companies have have agreed on a ceiling at which they're going to pay employees. That's going to sort of be criminal because well, ultimately it's not related to some legitimate ancillary business consideration between the two companies where they're working on or jointly developing something. They're operating in separate spaces. And what they've done is effectively capped the ability for employees to earn a higher wage. Whereas if they had to compete, you know, potentially those employees could get $110,000 or $150,000. But instead, there's a, there's a cap. And we think that that ultimately sort of harms competition for labor. In, in terms of no poach, you could sort of turn it um, or it could, it could occur in the, the same context. Uh, right, you know those those companies could could be competing for programmers, and they could be worried that there's so few of them that if they go to you know their competitor, that they're going to lose the ability to you know work on on their on their project, and you know their competitor might have the same fear. Uh, so they could call up one another and say, hey, you know we just can't really deal with the employee mobility that's happening right now, or the risk of of losing you know our key employees in this area right now. How about this? Let's not hire one another's employees, or at a minimum. How about we just you know refuse to solicit them? So you're not going to reach out to our guys and try and take them, and in exchange, we're not going to we're not going to do the same to you. That's ultimately going to be a naked no poach agreement because it's not related at all to some sort of joint business venture, and ultimately it reduces competition for that labor. It it reduces. Uh, you know, employees' ability to choose where they're going to work, and and, and also it, sti- it it could have the potential to stifle innovation by you know reducing and sort of locking in talent in one sp- in one space. So s- switching from the, the sort of the nuts and bolts of of the law to how it's been enforced, essentially the regulatory and enforcement environment. John, one of the questions that kind of comes up in my mind is, so we have these two different types of of violations, wage fixing versus no poach. Historically, has there been one or the other that you've seen enforced the most? In other words, 
You know, it's a little like the FCPA and the Travel Act, right? DOJ historically enforced FCPA more than the Travel Act, and now sometimes we see more cases where you find both of them being charged. Have you, just from a, and since you're one of the wise sages of the antitrust world, um, have you historically seen the DOJ pursue one or the other more vigorously? I think the cases that have come up have come up more in the no-poach space than wage fixing. But I also want to kind of complete the the background and the nuts and bolts. Kevin gave a good overview, but I think a lot of listeners may be familiar with non-compete agreements between employers and employees. And, you know, of course, we're antitrust lawyers, so we have to use these technical terms. We call those vertical agreements between an employer and an employee. Those are never per se unlawful. I think most of us are, are familiar with those being tested under the, the rule of reason. State law, often, I know in California, those are, are per se unlawful, but that's under state law. But under antitrust, those would always be viewed under the rule of reason. And the effect on competition would depend on how long that agreement, that restriction lasted and what geographic area it covered. Today's show is not about those vertical agreements. It's about horizontal agreements between competing employers. And you're right, there's generally two kind of variants here. There's wage fixing and no poach. Historically, the antitrust division has filed more no poach cases, and they really started getting active in this space back in 2010. There were two cases in 2010. There was another in 2012 that were brought against mostly high-tech companies that had agreed with each other uh, not to poach each other's employees. So Marcus, you and I are are tech companies. We've invested a lot in our employees. We've trained them. And, you know, let's agree that we'll not cold call each other employees, each other's, or we'll give ourselves a, a heads up, you know, if one of your employees comes over and wants to work at my company, or we agree not to recruit each other's employees at all. Those were, th- those were the kinds of cases. Kevin's right. That sort of arrangement is per se unlawful, but these were brought as civil cases. Why is that? In my experience, the antitrust division, when it's seen a new kind of agreement in new markets, it's gone civil first, just to warn the industry about its intentions before dropping the hammer with criminal sanctions, which can be very severe. And I think that's what was happening back then. These were new kinds of agreements restricting competition in in labor markets. There was a whole new corporate department, the HR department, that now needed antitrust compliance training. And it really changed the way companies think about their competition. In my experience, most companies tend to think of their competitors as those that they compete with downstream in the sales of the products they make or the services they sell. And with these no-poach cases, now they have to think about a much broader set of competitors, all the other employers they compete with upstream in the market for their for their workers. So started out civil. The only relief was injunctive relief, you know, a go forth and send no more prohibition on entering into similar kinds of agreements. But, you know, they were still very expensive because there were follow-on class action lawsuits that resulted in, I believe, over a billion dollars in damages. And has there been a switch to criminal prosecution? In other words, has there been a, and, and I'd like you also to get your thoughts on on why that is. On, in other words, I'll ask you two questions at once. Uh, one is, why is it that the that the uh, DOJ has been pursuing no poach more than, uh, than the wage fixing agreements? Is that just because of the evidence being more easily obtainable? Is there some other reason? 
And then also have you kind of walk us through a little bit if there's been a switch. You talked about some of these early cases being civil and that essentially the DOJ would send sort of a, t- a warning shot across an industry with a civil case prior to pursuing criminal charges uh, in, in other contexts. What, has there been a shift in that regard? Sure. Well, on the first question, I think those are just the cases that they found. The division certainly would not be shy in bringing a wage-fixing case because I think that's the labor market equivalent of price-fixing, which is known in antitrust law as kind of the, the worst kind of offense, fixing prices with your competitors about the products you sell. No, no poach is bad, too. It's kind of the labor market equivalent of market allocation. You know, if you agree just to sell sell on the east side of the Mississippi, I'll just agree to, to sell on the west side of the Mississippi, and we'll, we'll, you know, allocate markets and not compete with each other that way. So I think that's just the evidence that they have uncovered is why there have tended to be more no poach cases. On the second question, yeah, something important happened in October 2016. The DOJ issued some guidance telling the world, look, we've brought these cases civilly so far, but from now on, if we find a per se case, it's going to be criminal. If we find one of these cases that Kevin talked about where there's agreements where employers are not in some sort of legitimate joint venture activity, it's it's going to be criminal. So that was in October 2016. In January 2018, the head of the antitrust division said in a speech, now we've got some ongoing grand jury investigations going on, which kind of signaled to the defense bar that we might see some cases, but didn't see any cases the rest of that year, didn't see any cases in 2019, didn't see any cases for most of 2020. And then finally, late last year, the wait was over. In December 2020, the DOJ filed its first criminal wage-fixing case, and then in January of this year, 2021, it filed its first criminal nail poach case. You know, and before we switch to, to kind of getting into the details of, of that 2020 case, I mean, this is maybe an ignorant question, but I think of law firms, right? One law firm announces we're going to increase our salaries for first-year associates to X, and then within days and often within hours, you know, basically all of the other firms in that strata of law firm and many that aren't will try to uh, match. Why is that not I mean, there may not be an explicit agreement in the sense that someone calls someone else and says, hey, we're going to put the price to X. You should do the same. But but there seems to be a a sort of, a, a, at least, the, 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 again, the flare goes out that we're raising price, that we're going to fix the, uh, the, the, the typical salary for a first-year associate at X, and everyone meets it. And then if you don't do it, you know, if you go higher than that, you have a you know, competitive advantage. If you go below that, you have a disadvantage with certain law schools. And again, this may be more born out of my ignorance about how these things work. But when I hear you describe wage fixing agreements, I immediately think of, of you know, the uh, the news that comes out that such and such a firm has now increased their salaries. And so everyone else quickly follows suit. And if they don't, they have to explain why not. And that's then covered by, you know, various um, online outlets and others. Uh, how does that compare? I mean, why, why is there not a concern about wage fixing when that happens? Right. No, it's a great question, actually. And this comes up all the time in, uh, you know, standard antitrust cases and also these labor market antitrust cases. Section one of the Sherman Act requires an agreement or an understanding. It does not have to be an explicit agreement, which is what you said. The law firms don't have to get into a room and sign something. We agree that we will follow each other and match each other's first-year associate salaries. It can be implied. It can be oral. It can be you know, inferred from conduct. Typically, proving these cases requires at least some contact 
direct contact between competitors. You know, if the DOJ or a private plaintiff seems to uh, think there is suspicious patterns going on with prices on the sell side or wages on the buy side, you know, they can get discovery and see if the, in this case, law firms are communicating with each other. And if there's no real direct contact, you just can't prove it. But you raise a good point because people think about antitrust and they hear, oh, price fixing is is illegal. Well, what about the gas stations across the street from each other? One guy comes out and raises his gas price by 10 cents. The other guy gives him a wink and comes out, raises his gas prices 10 cents either uh, as well. Now, put aside maybe the, the wink, uh, because that may be indicative of something. But long ago, the Supreme Court made clear that conscious parallelism, the antitrust term for it, conscious parallelism is not illegal. And it's not evidence of an agreement, particularly where you have an industry where maybe you only have four or five, six big competitors. It's very natural that you would see their prices somewhat similar their wages for certain kinds of specialized workers, you know, somewhat similar if those are made public. And certainly in our business, in the, in the law firm business, those those salaries are announced. And in just a, another question on the law firm business. So if you're a smaller firm and, 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 and you're really competing for the same associate pool, but you're for you, it's more of a reach to get some of these associates, you know, really highly qualified associates. And all of a sudden, you know, 10 of the big firms all agree to jack up the price by an additional 30000 effectively making it impossible for you to, to recruit from this pool of desirable associates. I mean, do you as a, as a, as a private actor have a, a remedy? A re- is there something you can do? And I, I get this this conscious parallelism, which is an interesting, uh, frankly, sounds like a sleight of hand to me, but but uh, I haven't studied this topic very much. But just it, it has sort of an immediate, uh, uh, just has a certain has a certain sound to it. But is there an avenue for a private litigant, or even if a private litigant believes, based on maybe someone they recruited, that there is some wage fixing or price fixing going on at a competitor? What is a private company or law firm or able to do in order to seek enforcement of these laws? Yeah, it's another uh, good question because the antitrust laws can be enforced both by the federal enforcement agencies, the antitrust division and federal trade commission, but also there's a private cause of action. So in, in your hypothetical, if the smaller law firm thinks there is evidence that the larger law firms have gotten together and agreed to increase salaries in order to deprive the smaller nascent competitor uh, that they're a little worried about, to deprive that firm of the good lawyers, that would be a group, it's called a group boycott. But again, they would have to prove that the larger law firms had agreed with each other to, to do that. Yeah, and, don't, and I don't want to get too deep into sort of the, the philosophy behind it, but if the goal of antitrust laws is to you know, increase mobility, reduce you know, adverse impacts on the market, why should it matter for the average citizen whether there's an explicit agreement or a wink-wink agreement or a conscious parallelism, which uh, sounds like an explicit agreement just very carefully executed uh, without any evidence of uh, an explicit discussion? I mean, what if I'm just a regular you know, citizen, non-lawyer, wh- why do I care? Uh, why should I care whether there's a, an explicit agreement or conscious parallelism? Because you don't want to deprive in a market economy, the ability of a competitor to set a certain price to keep themselves competitive. So you can't prevent that, let's say the gas station hypothetical, owner number one comes out and lowers his price by five cents. 
you don't want to say, you know what, we're going to prevent gas station number two from coming out and, and matching that price because we want some differential pricing in the market because we think that would be a good thing. He has the right to come out and lower his price as long as he's making his own, his own decisions about what prices to charge. He has the right to do that. Law firm number one announces an increase in first associate salaries. Law firm number two matches. We can't prevent, should not prevent, there's no policy of preventing law firm number three from matching to stay competitive in the market because that law firm has the right to keep its wages competitive to compete with the first two law firms. So if, if we're in a market where there's a natural monopoly, a public utility, where rates and prices are regulated, then the government can do that. Antitrust is really, you know, it's different than socialism where we have government owning the means of production. It's different from price regulation where we have natural monopolies. It's the way we maintain market competition in a free market economy. So trans, uh, transitioning a little bit from the philosophical to, to the concrete, and I appreciate you helping me out here a little bit uh, to understand some of these topics. And I'm going to guess there, there are a fair number of law review articles or books written on, on some of these. But uh, you mentioned earlier, John, the 2020 wage fixing indictment. I don't know, Kevin, if you want to kind of if you're in a position to give us a bit of a primer on, on what happened then, obviously a more recent case, and, and to bring us up to speed also in terms of if there are other wage fixing or no poaching cases that have been brought and, 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 and where this seems to be trending. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to sort of provide an overview on the recent indictments, uh, both wage fixing and no poach. Uh, so the the first case after sort of years long promises from the DOJ of, of increased attention in this space for potential criminal enforcement uh, was filed in December 2020 in the Eastern District of Texas in a, in a case called United States versus Jindal. And in that case, uh, Mr. Jindal owned a therapist staffing company. Uh, effectively, what uh, he was doing was providing home health care agencies with therapists and physical therapy assistants uh, to provide services in the context of those home health care arrangements. And between March of 2017 and August of 2017, uh, Jindal was alleged to have conspired with owners of other businesses to lower the wages paid to physical therapists and um, physical therapy assistants uh, who are providing services in these um, home health care type uh, arrangements. And uh, the indictment's pretty clear about what was ha uh, happening here. Uh, Mr. Jindal was alleged to have, with his competitor, exchanged non-public salary information, communicated his intention to decrease the rates uh, that were going to be paid to both physical therapists and to their assistants. And ultimately, an agreement was reached to reduce the salaries or rates of compensation for those physical therapists and and uh, their assistants. And uh, it's interesting because the indictment featured um, quotations from text messages where uh, you know Mr. Jindal and one of his competitors agreed that therapists were overpaid and coordinated to lower the wages paid to the therapists and assistants. And it's interesting because it's the first time I've personally seen an indictment feature a thumbs up emoji because uh, you know there was a discussion about whether they were going to you know fix these wages, and one person responded with a thumbs up emoji. So uh, apparently uh, that's going to be good enough now to establish that there's an agreement. So ultimately, you know, this conduct, as laid out in the in indictment, would would fit 
the elements required for there to be a violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Act. There are two competitors, uh, or more than two competitors, agreeing uh, on the price by which labor is going to be paid for a specific type of uh, specific type of service. The antitrust laws exist to protect competition, not to protect competitors. And so what was really being harmed here was the ability for there to be robust competition for those physical therapists and physical therapist assistants who were providing home uh, healthcare services. The employers were sort of reducing competition in that space. And that's why the DOJ is sort of going after it criminally at this point. And then in sort of the the no poach space, uh, we, we got you know just a couple of weeks ago, or I guess over a month ago now, an additional case in the no poach space where uh, a defendant, in this case surgical care affiliates, which operates you know outpatient medical care centers, engaged in a conspiracy with its competitors to not solicit high level employees operating in this space. Uh, and uh, again, sort of like in the Jindal case, the indictment was pretty specific in terms of citing both meetings and documentary evidence where the parties stated the terms of you know, their no poach understanding in, in no uncertain terms. You know, you, you had an email that said, you know, we've reached agreements where we will not approach each other's people proactively. These are happening you know, between competitors. And you know these competitors were ensuring compliance you know with these uh, agreements by requiring employees who were looking at potentially transitioning to you know a competitor to notify their current employer that they were actually looking for for other work before their application would be considered which is probably going to reduce the likelihood that an employee is going to be willing to go through the recruitment process. And and ultimately, this ends up being sort of a, a no-poach case because, again, it's, it's, uh, and, and, and it's analogous to market allocation because what you have here are companies that are sort of allocating how and on what terms employees are going to be able to move freely between, you know, between each other. And ultimately, the DOJ looked at the, the facts of, of this case and determined that they thought this is exactly what's going on. We're, we're allocating whether and in what context high-level employees can switch between employers. There doesn't appear in this case to be some sort of a legitimate ancillary business interest that's being promoted by this. This is really just about you know protecting our ability to retain labor. And so the DOJ decided to go after this uh, criminally. Uh, as of now, these are the only two criminal indictments that we've been able to locate. But you know, given sort of the DOJ's increased interest in this uh, space, um, and given you know, the former AAG's public statements that there are a number of grand jury investigations, I wouldn't be surprised if these are the first two and what are, are many more to come. But, but I also think that it gives businesses now an opportunity to sort of, sort of really look um, at, at how they're participating in the labor market um, to, to make sure that they're in the clear here. You know, how much does market power factor in? In other words, I know this is not a monopoly case, but like in a wage fixing or a po no poach agreement case, let's say you're totally overplaying your hand. You know, you think that you can agree with another person in a big city that you're going to try to fix prices, but it turns out there's so many competitors out there that it's a it's not going to happen, right? You don't have the ability to actually effectively prevent the movement of labor or or otherwise impact the market. Is it is it, is that then just an attempt liability, or is there is there part of the the substantive uh? The substantive charges that have to include that you actually either had the ability to or believed you had the ability to influence the market. 
first of all, you're right. This isn't a case of monopolization, but this is a this is an excellent question because it, it gets us back to you know that sort of distinction between per se and and violations and those violations that are subject to the rule of reason. Our antitrust laws aren't aren't really concerned with ultimately the impact of an agreement that unreasonably restrains trade. I, that's not the, the focus, right? What is illegal and, and what is prosecuted is the agreement or the attempts to make the agreement itself. Doesn't matter whether it's successful, doesn't matter how successful it is. Our, our sort of policy view in this country is that we need to protect the competitive environment. So these arrangements where we you know, fix wages, where there's prices that are being fixed, you know, th there could be arguments that in some cases that's that's good for competition, but over the long run, uh, we've made a policy decision that actually it isn't because it reduces the competitive, uh, you know, it, it re reduces the benefits of, of competition, which ultimately, hopefully, lead to lower prices, increased innovation uh, for, for all of us. And so, uh, it, you know, uh, that that could be something that a defendant would want to raise. Hey, we didn't even have the ability to do this. No one was no one was harmed. Doesn't matter for purposes of determining whether there was actually a violation or not. But John might have something to, he he might want to add. Yeah, I'll just say you're exactly right, Kevin. That's true in criminal cases. Market power doesn't matter. In civil cases, it does. In civil cases, you still have to prove the agreement. But if you have an agreement that's reasonably ancillary to some legitimate activity, then the analysis becomes a little more regulatory. As Kevin said before, then the judge weighs, is it more anti-competitive or is it more pro-competitive? But where you have these clear agreements that are unrelated to any legitimate joint activity, Kevin's right, we're really just after preserving the process. Those are per se unlawful. You just have to prove that in a criminal indictment, you just have to prove the agreement, and that's the violation. And Kevin, you, you mentioned these two cases that uh, presumably are still pending, one in December of 2021 in January. You know, in the white collar world more broadly, there has been a lot written and a lot said in terms of where is essentially the enforcement uh, and regulatory environment? Where is it going? And, and obviously, there's a, a fair amount of speculation that under the Biden administration, there will be more vigorous enforcement uh, of various uh, laws and regulations. In your, in your world, in the antitrust world, and particularly in the wage fixing and no poach uh, world, is there any speculation? Do you have any sense of where the, the environment is going? Do you anticipate seeing more cases uh, in 21, 22, uh, and so forth in, in these areas? Or, do you, or is it just too early to tell? Well, I would say I'll jump in. Just uh, I spent a number of years at the antitrust division, and it, it, it's my view that there's really bipartisan consensus that criminal enforcement should be uh, criminal offenses should be prosecuted very vigorously. And it doesn't matter if you if there's a Republican or Democrat in the White House, uh, they usually have been. So I don't see much effect on the change in administration on these kinds of cases. Typically, where you see a change in enforcement with an election, it, it's more on the civil side of the House. And in in terms of of, of these new cases that are brought and and what you're saying, which is that this this that there's a we, we might expect to see a little bit greater enforcement on the civil side. I mean, are there concrete steps? You know, we always think about our clients and think about okay we have this new trend or we have this potential new area of, of risk. What should our clients be thinking about? Are there, do you, John or Kevin have any thoughts on 
on where clients should be allocating their, their, their limited resources, what types of things from a compliance perspective they should be doing in order to steer clear of any potential claims that they fell short of uh, the government's expectations. Yeah, I can, I can start and then Kevin can add some thoughts. I mentioned first that you know I think companies ought to update and expand their compliance programs to include their HR department. It's clear with these cases that antitrust is not just for sales and marketing anymore. It's for everybody. The division is serious. The penalties in these criminal cases are significant. The statutory maximum is $100 million in terms of a corporate fine. And individuals can face up to 10 years in jail. The longest sentence so far has been five years in jail, just generally for criminal antitrust offenses. So they're serious. And there are, as I mentioned before, trouble damages in the follow-on civil cases. Second, you're doing those compliance programs, you know, you got to change the mindset and you got to make sure the, the company knows they've got a lot more competitors than they may think. You know, for the products or services they sell, they may be in a market where it's just a handful but in the market to, to hire and retain the executives, the engineers, the marketing people, you know, hourly workers, you know, they almost certainly compete in a much broader market for labor than they're used to thinking about. And finally, if they see something in an internal investigation, it's important to say something and to report it to experienced antitrust counsel very quickly uh, because the antitrust division has a leniency policy that actually gives complete immunity from criminal prosecution to the first company or the first individual that blows the whistle. No criminal charges, no criminal fines, no jail sentences for your cooperating executives. So the benefits are significant, but they only go to the first to report. And in the past, the race for leniency, it's, it's a matter of calling the antitrust division first and getting what's called a marker. You have your marker, you, have, you are first in line. That race for leniency has sometimes been won by less than one hour. So speed is of the essence. If you see something in one of your investigations, get in touch with counsel who know the ins and outs of the program. It's, it's really important. And I think the only thing that I would add to sort of what John said is that the, the DOJ is actually really trying to incentivize um, robust corporate compliance programs. So in, in 2019, the DOJ announced a new policy where the existence of a corporate compliance program will be factored in at both the charging and the sentencing stage of criminal antitrust uh, activity. So it behooves clients actually not just for purposes of sort of discovering these things, but potentially you know mitigating uh, the, the damage that can be wrought by an antitrust violation to have a good compliance program in place. And and a question about the marker, John, uh, does it matter whether the person seeking the marker was involved in the misconduct uh, at, uh, at an organizational level? In other words, could the kingpin of, of an antitrust violation, just because he or she was first to the post, get the marker? One of the qualifications for getting leniency is you can't be the orchestrator or the, the, the leader. You, you couldn't have been the, the first mover of the conspiracy. Um, so that would, under the terms of the uh, policy, disqualify you. I, I can tell you generally in looking at the qualifications that are you know, public, they're on the Antitrust Division website, it, this has been a very successful program for the Antitrust Division. 
you know, the vast majority of, I did criminal enforcement for seven or eight years, and the vast majority of uh, investigations and cases I worked on started, uh, they came to us through the leniency program. The antitrust division has worked hard to keep that program. And some changes recently on the criminal enforcement side that many think have made the program less less effective, but the, the division has, has, you know, worked hard to try to keep up the incentives to report. So in general, I think they work hard to incentivize reporting and to uh, give protection to the first company that reports. And what are the, you mentioned that there are, or at least are some that feel that there have been changes made that make harm effectiveness. What, what are those changes? What are, what are the areas that are disputed or that are controversial now? Yeah, I'll, I'll just mention a couple there. First, just because everything has to be more complicated, right? There's two kinds of leniency, type A and type B. So type A is when the division has not heard anything about this conspiracy. Type B is when they have gotten some information about it, or they have some open investigation or some suspicion about it. Uh, if you report first under, uh, and you get a type B leniency marker, it is no longer guaranteed that all of your current employees who cooperate will be covered and immune from prosecution. The division now reserves the right if they find certain current employees that were very culpable in the activity. They reserve the right to charge them. But, you know, when a company comes to you and says, we have this internal investigation, we have found this, we're going to have a board meeting tomorrow morning, what should we do? You know, it makes it much harder to advise the board, the decision ought to be clear, you ought to go in, because you don't know if you're C CEO or vice president of, of marketing you know, how deeply involved were they? Do you know? And if they may be subject to criminal prosecution, it complicates the decision. So that's change number one. Change number two, there have been several deferred prosecution agreements, which given your, your time in the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, you're probably very familiar with, it actually it was a very unusual practice in the antitrust division to enter into DPAs or NPAs, non-prosecution agreements, because they th the, the thinking was that reduces the incentive to self-report. The division has been quite active recently in granting uh, deferred prosecution agreements to, for example, companies in the healthcare space that would be disqualified from the Medicare, Medicaid programs. It's essentially a death sentence to them. It's, it would act the, forcing them to plead guilty and forcing them to be convicted would actually take a competitor out of the market and perhaps be anti-competitive. So instead there's a DPA. Uh, Kevin mentioned the increased emphasis on compliance programs in order to incentivize good compliance programs. Uh, a few years ago, the division said, if you have a good enough compliance program, will consider you for a DPA, even if you're outside of uh, an industry like healthcare, where you would be disqualified from the market. So there have been some trends, and there's you know, vigorous debate in the defense bar whether the leniency program has become less effective uh, due to these changes. It's clear that the number of criminal cases and fines are, are down a bit, and that could just be a natural cycle of large investigations just sort of wrapping up, or there, you know, there could be less less incentives to report.
So it seems that there's a, a very regimented and, and, and sort of well-trod path when it comes to the people who are first in line, right? They get the marker, type A, type B. But what about uh, sort of the, the, the rest of the folks, the people who are second or third in line, as, as you and I know, because I've had the privilege of working with you on, on, a, on an antitrust case fairly recently. You know, in a lot of cases, the nature of these antitrust allegations are multiple parties involved. And let's say you're not the first in line, you but you're second or third in line. What's the calculus? What's the disclosure calculus there? In other words, you know you're not the per, the first, but you're trying to figure out whether it makes sense to come in and whether it makes sense to come in quickly versus to take your time. What's the disclosure calculus if, to the extent that there is is one that you can describe there, John? There is still an incentive to cooperate quickly. You won't get immunity. You're still going to be charged. But the early cooperators, and I mentioned cooperators in the plural for a reason I'll mention in a moment, will get substantial discounts from usually the bottom of the sentencing guidelines range, you know, months or sometimes even years after they first go in and produce documents, proffer information from the internal investigation, uh, present the executives for interviews with the prosecutors. Perhaps some of those will uh, testify before the grand jury. It's a long process. But at the end of the day, once the volume of affected commerce is calculated, the sentencing guidelines range is determined. And early cooperators usually get quite substantial discounts from usually the, the bottom of the range. If you sit on your hands and do not go in quickly, the division notices that and your discount will be less. Now, I use cooperators plural because, uh, you know, one big change that we've seen since the mid-1990s is uh, criminal enforcement in uh, antitrust law and competition law has really gone international. The United States was one of the first countries to prosecute antitrust offenses, per se offenses, criminally, uh, but it's become much more common in other countries. Other countries typically have a much more regimented, you know, there is a race for number two. There is a race for number three. And if you are number two, you'll get a 50% discount. If you're number three, you'll get a 30% discount, for example. You know, those are uh, example numbers. The, the division doesn't have a strict system like that where if you're second in line, you get it's, it's generally if, if you're one of the early ones, and we understand it may take an extra day or two to, to get in and, and organize your, your executives, call the board meeting and make a decision. But if you're one of the first ones after the search warrant is executed and the investigation becomes public, you're, you're in the, the group that's essentially first in line after the uh, leniency applicant. And, you know, I had a, I guess it's a, a public policy question. Kevin, you're in Portland. John, you're in D.C. So I think we've got the country pretty well covered geographically. One of the things I noticed as a former AUSA in Chicago is that as I get cases in different jurisdictions, uh, now on the defense side, uh, so much of it depends on what the office's policies are when it comes to cooperation. Some will give free falls. Some will have like a, a, almost like a math formula as to what percentages you get off. And there seems to be very little uniformity in terms of you know how, let's say, the Houston U.S. Attorney's Office to Chicago and the L.A. U.S. Attorney's Offices treat a particular case where a particular defendant says, you know, I want to cooperate in, 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 a, in a criminal case. Now, from what you're describing, John, it sounds like the the antitrust division has exercised a fair amount of control over over these plea deals or these negotiations. And obviously, you and I have been involved in some in, in the Midwest. 
from your collective perspective, either Kevin or John, I mean, since again, you cover the whole country and have cases all over the country and, and also with the criminal division, frankly, or I should say with the U.S. Attorney's offices, how do you compare sort of both the predictability of an outcome and then also how much it matters sort of who you draw as the prosecutor? How, how does that differ from antitrust division versus sort of the general, the U.S. Attorney's offices uh, handling cases? Oh, I can start. I mean, the antitrust division generally controls the criminal antitrust investigations in the different districts. Usually the the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office is not that active. And so one benefit to that is that decisions are really centralized and you get a much more uniform application of these policies and, you know, what benefit will I get if I'm second or third in those those kinds of things. And, you know, it may make some difference in terms of what uh, team you've got on a particular matter, but ultimately the important decisions are made by the front office of the the antitrust division. The the one exception I'd say to all that is, you know, there have been some financial, uh, some antitrust offenses in the financial industry, the LIBOR, the FX uh, investigations, where the antitrust division does it in conjunction with the criminal division of justice. And there you've got you know, perhaps some clash of, of cultures and decision-making styles where maybe going in, you, you couldn't predict that it would, that the outcome would come out quite, quite the same way. But assuming that uh, there's not another department, another division of the DOJ involved, I think it's usually pretty predictable. Yeah, and that's obviously, I mean, we, we certainly have seen that, particularly the bigger offices in the U.S. Attorney's offices will will try to, to uh at times thwart main justice's desires on particular cases. So you'll have a unit in main justice responsible for a particular type of uh, criminal conduct, maybe FCPA violations, and they may have one view. And, and some of the bigger offices with a little more clout are more successful in, 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 in dictating the outcomes of, of a particular case in their jurisdiction. So I've seen some of the smaller offices a little bit more beholden to to main justice in that regard. Well, look, first of all, I'm going to, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to go and spend my free time studying conscious parallelism a little bit more. That that sounds like like pretty good stuff. But having worked with you, you guys, and with the antitrust um, lawyers at Perkins, I can tell you I, I've really enjoyed it. And I know you guys are just the, the 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 best of the best. And so I appreciate you indulging me and uh, giving me a little bit of a primer on some of these uh, on some of these topics that I hope also our our listeners are going to find find interesting. Uh, so I want to thank you. Uh, on behalf of uh, the White Collar Group uh, and, of course, also on behalf of the firm for making the time to, to talk with us a little bit and to give us some insights into these issues that are both cutting edge and really interesting and, and also in helping our clients understand what they need to be doing next. So thanks very much for the time. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks, Marcus. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.